Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Chris Wood, who grew up in Boulder studying jazz and classical music. He's gone on to forge a fantastic career as a bassist, first with Modesky, Martin, and Wood, the famed avant-jazz funk trio, and then with the acclaimed Americana act The Wood Brothers, playing in tandem with his sibling Oliver. He's breathing the rarefied air of acclaimed recordings and tours, Grammy nominations, the works. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Is coming back to Colorado and seeing family and friends a respite or a madhouse for you? Back in the 90s when we would come through and it really felt like a hometown gig still because I was in my 20s and there was a lot of people I knew here. Hometown gigs are always like Russian roulette. It's either the best show you've ever had or it's your worst nightmare and you want to go hide (laughs) because it's a lot of self-imposed pressure and family and friends are there. And for a lot of those people, this is the only time they get to glimpse what your life is. And if you have a bad night, they're like, hmm, wonder how long this is going to last. <laughs> so it feels loaded. Yeah. You know? But if you have a good night, then you feel like a superhero. That's youth for you. I don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> at this stage, you've played nearly every venue on the front range. The Wood Brothers had performed at Red Rocks several times before you got to headline there in recent years. Red Rocks is booked every day of the year almost. But when you were growing up, that was a benchmark for a performer. It was almost like playing Madison Square Garden. Absolutely. It, uh, a career peak. Thankfully, over the years, I've played there a lot, opening for bigger bands. And so I've gotten used to the place and normalized it a little bit, which was nice because when I was a kid, I didn't get there enough, unfortunately. But oh God, the only concert that comes to my mind at the moment is Sting. I think he was on his first album solo tour. And 1985. I was in high school and somehow we got a ticket and ended up there. So it felt like a place where just big rock stars played. I never thought I'd be headlining it. And it wasn't really a goal either, especially once I got into music and jazz and I was in New York and Modesky and Martin and Wood. None of that was music that was going to reach that kind of level of popularity. So that was never part of the plan. Is it an easy place to play? The cliche is that it's the most beautiful place on earth to play. But in terms of being able to breathe or (laughs) some other things that might impact a performance? Sure. Some people get affected by altitude. I don't envy New Orleans musicians coming there and having to play a trumpet or something like that. You hear stories. No, actually, for how big it looks when you're in the audience, it's an amazingly intimate space. Because the pitch, the grade of the seats is so steep, people are right there kind of feels like a club gig, but with the best view you've ever had. And the sound is great. I remember being impressed right away, early days, Modesky Martin and Wood opening for someone, and just felt pretty comfortable on that stage. Another special show for fans occurred at the Boulder Theater in 2018. You played the song, The Old Home Place, with your father, the first time he had ever joined you in concert. Yeah. In the first place, props for covering that song. I remember the old Dillard's version, which is a classic, but that moment brought your dad's influence full circle. We grew up with our dad playing and singing around the house. He was a folky back in the late 50s. He was in Cambridge going to Harvard. He had a radio show, and 
He played Joan Baez before she became such a superstar. As part of the great folk scare of the 60s? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we don't know what to call it, the folk implosion or explosion. It depends who you ask. But he was part of that scene and was playing so many of the songs. If you listen to Bob Dylan's first record, a lot of the folk traditionals on that record, our dad was singing as well. So that was just part of the zeitgeist. And then he ended up becoming a scientist. He was a molecular biologist here in Boulder doing research and teaching at CU. And that happened when you were school-aged? Yeah, we moved here in 76, so I was about six years old. We took it for granted, him playing and singing around the house all the time. We never really thought much of it, or his record collection for that matter, which was great, until the Wood Brothers came together in 2005 or six, And when we started writing and singing songs together, it dawned on us, oh, that actually was a big influence. Seeing him two feet in front of your face playing the guitar and singing, it just fills a kid with a sense of wonder. How do you know where to put your fingers and make that sound, and what's that chord? You get real curious about it and how it works. You were musical very early on. You studied composition and classical bass. The funny thing is that my brother was actually the one to get a bass first. He was interested in electric bass, and he got one for Christmas, and then quickly realized that he'd rather play something with six strings on it. So he handed down the bass to me and showed me how to play the blues, and so we were able to play together a little bit. But then I just took it and ran. Another thing that I didn't realize without some hindsight is that I was incredibly fortunate with my first teachers and mentors. After reading a Malcolm Gladwell book... Uh, Outliers? The Outliers book, you know, the whole 10,000 hours thing, and he talks about how fortunate some people were, the Bill Gates who were in the right place at the right time. Yes, they were talented, but they had the right situation to thrive. When I looked back at my early music days, I realized I kind of had a little bit of that too. My first teacher was this guy, Rob Cassinger. He's this great local bass player at the time, but young, really young. Maybe just had graduated from high school. I was maybe in eighth grade, something like that. He was incredibly talented. He could play any style, electric bass, upright bass, classical, jazz, funk, anything. So he's a young hotshot, and that was my first teacher, and he was really influential on me. And he's the one that said, after a while of studying electric bass, he's like, you should take up the upright. And I was real resistant to it. I had a girlfriend. She didn't think that was very cool. And <laughs> It's a big factor. <laughs> it's a big, it's a commitment. I had no idea. Upright bass, if you really want to pursue it in the way that I ended up pursuing it, which is having heroes like Charles Mingus and these jazz greats, not to mention classical players, it's a huge commitment. Like a lot of things in life, if I would have known ahead of time the commitment involves, there's no way. I wouldn't have done it. There's no way. So anyways, he pushed it. You got to do this. And I said, okay. And then I got to high school, and the jazz band director was this guy, Jeff Jacobson, who was a professional upright bass player, mostly jazz, but he could play classical too. He took me under his wing. I was in the jazz band. But then he became a teacher, and then eventually he was subbing out gigs to me. And so between those two guys, I had this incredible start and then was able to buy an amazing instrument by this guy who used to be the principal bass player of what was the Denver Symphony a long, long time ago. And he acquired and sold basses. And so my parents helped me get a good instrument. It's the same instrument I still play to this day. I was a lucky kid. I always thought I was going to be an astronomer or some nerdy scientist like my dad. As a teenager, you signed on for a musician service that would mix musicians professionally to play yeah. in the area. 
I was actually wondering if that still exists in Denver. It was a company called MST Entertainment. It stood for Musician's Standard Time. Basically, you audition for the company, and if you get in, they have this huge pool of musicians. And for each instrument, they're ranked. So you got your first call bass player, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth call, and they do that for all the instruments. And then they have this gigantic book of songs. It was everything you could imagine, from all the old R&B covers to jazz songs to Broadway tunes to ethnic wedding music and pop stuff, rock and roll. This company, it was literally like a salaried job. You would just get a call, all right, you have to be at this place at this time, and it's either a wedding gig or a corporate event. And then you have this enormous book of songs, and you got to learn some of them because it goes so fast. You get halfway through the theme to Flashdance, and then he's like, all right, have an Aguila, come on, pull it up. And then New York, New York, and he's just, you can't even finish a song. And then while you're playing the song you're playing, you have to pull out the music to the other song. And it was this high-stress thing, but it was the perfect situation for someone my age who was ambitious to learn this huge body of music. A lot of the other musicians I'm surrounded by are much older than I was. Some of them may be a little bitter about the fact that they didn't have their own music career. That was an eye-opener for me, too, because I loved playing the show, even if it's a wedding. Just playing these songs and learning all this music was great for me, and the musicians were great. But on breaks, a little depressing. There's a lot of bad musicians' jokes going around to pass the time, and I always remember... I just wanted the break to be over so bad, so we could just get on stage and do the fun part. I went to Boulder High School, and then I took a year off after to just do that, to just work and practice and writing letters to my girlfriend who was away at college. You know, so like That was my entire existence for that year before I went off to the East Coast. In your senior class at Boulder High, you were voted most musical? I believe so, yeah. Did you place in any other yearbook superlatives, class clown, or most likely to get ID'd when you turn 30? Uh, (laughs) By the time I was in high school, and especially towards the end there, junior, senior year, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I socially dropped out because I was so focused. And it was funny because I was dating a woman that I eventually married, was a cheerleader. I remember all the jocks would just ask her, what are you doing with that guy? Just reclusive music guy. I was involved in the jazz band and all the choirs and if musicals happened. I was just doing all the music stuff. It was obvious that's pretty much all I was about. You attended the New England Conservatory of Music? I ended up there really just because I saw that Dave Holland was teaching there. He's a great jazz bass player, played with Miles Davis. I didn't know a lot about the school. I just saw that name. I knew I didn't want to go to Berkeley. I had a friend who went to Berkeley, and it just seemed, from everything that I heard about, a little too much like a music factory. But the jazz teachers at the New England Conservatory were incredible people with their careers outside of teaching. So I was attracted to that. Did you have support of family when you left for the East Coast? Yeah. My dad could have been a musician professionally, but early on, he just went the academic route. And my mom, they were both PhD'd, and our mom was a poet, too, a published poet. But they had no experience with what a real musician's life was like. So for them, it was a total leap of faith to just support what I was doing. And then my brother as well, eventually. Yeah, and just send me off to music school and see what happened. It was a big experiment. The conservatory was really all about the teachers. It was a bizarre place to be doing what I was doing. I remember the president of the school at the time was quoted as saying, keep the black music in the basement, referring to the jazz program. Oh, okay, this is weird here. Because it was predominantly known as a classical school, and obviously the president had issues with that. 
But I had incredible private teachers, not only Dave Holland on bass, but an amazing drummer, Bob Moses. So I was studying from all these different people, and I quickly realized that that's where the good stuff was. And so I basically dropped out to part-time for the next semester. I was only full-time for a semester. Second semester, part-time. By the second year, I was literally just taking private lessons from these people, playing gigs. And that's when I met John Modeski. And we ended up on this tour of Israel with Bob Moses, the drummer who was also our teacher and kind of a mentor for all of the Modeski Martin Wood guys. And we ended up on this crazy tour in Israel after Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. And we're touring over there with this Israeli sax player in Tel Aviv. And people are talking about Scud missiles might be coming over the mountains from Jordan. And it was a really intense time. But the whole experience was our bonding experience where John and I got to know each other. After that, we ended up moving to New York together and then started Modesky Martin and Wood. So with John on organ and Billy on drums and you on bass, you found a following. Boy, it's hard to begin describing it loosely as groove-based jazz. You guys are hard to put in any sort of box, man. <laughs> yeah, we ended up just calling it homeless music because it didn't fit in any category. Or um, unjazz, that became the name of our company, Unjazz Incorporated. We don't know what to call it. It is jazz in the sense that we interacted as a trio the way a jazz trio would interact, but our vocabulary drew from things that weren't jazz, from R&B and reggae and hip-hop and rock and roll. We'd use all that stuff but still interact improvisationally like a jazz trio. That was kind of the idea. If you had to bring up one record that was our Bible, it was Duke Ellington's Money Jungle. You got Charles Mingus, Max Roach, and Duke Ellington. Mingus is pissed off because Duke wouldn't let him do any of his tunes on the session. It was really Duke's session. And you hear that, and Mingus is just trying to almost derail the music with his anger and weird choices. But Duke and Max are so good that they can't be derailed. And the result is this magical, tense, beautiful music that became an adjective to Modesky, Martin, and Wood. Every once in a while, someone do that money jungle thing. We knew exactly what they meant. did start out playing mostly acoustically, at least in a recording sense. Yeah, we started as a piano trio. So John and I got this gig at the Village Gate, a famous jazz club in Greenwich Village, really just playing jazz standards. And we would play with some great jazz drummers, but then we met Billy Martin. Through Bob Moses, was recommended that we should connect. I think Bob understood that Billy was a creative, spiritual brother for us in some way. And the thing about Billy that was so great is he didn't play jazz stylistically, but he knew how to interact and improvise like a jazz musician. It brought in a whole other rhythmic flavor to the music. The Shackman album was a bit of a breakthrough, maybe only commercially you got a little more national attention. Absolutely. The Shackman was kind of like our apocalypse now. 
if you've seen the documentary about Apocalypse Now, which is called Heart of Darkness. This is an incredible story of Francis Ford Coppola trying to make in the jungle and the disasters that happen and the financial. Shackman was like our little mini version of that. The idea was to make a record in the jungles of Hawaii in a shack. And the reason we chose that location is because we started going there. At a certain point, Modesky Martin Wood, we were touring so much and we're renting these New York apartments, which aren't cheap. And we eventually decided, well, we're on the road so much, let's just not do that anymore. And we don't want to tour in winter either because that's no fun. So we decided, let's go to Hawaii. <laughs> Billy had a connection. And we ended up in Hawaii spending two months each winter in the mid-90s there and ended up renting a shack from a friend of ours who lived in a treehouse on the shore. And again, this is a Bob Moses connection. So back to Bob. Back in the 70s, he would do this thing with his buddy where he'd just spin a globe. he just, without looking, put his finger on the globe, and wherever it landed, they would go. And one time it landed on the big island of Hawaii, and so they went. And who picks them up hitchhiking? Our friend Carl Green, who lived in a treehouse and owned the shack where we recorded Shackman. play music there when we were just visiting and living there in the winter times and it was really one of the best sounding spaces we've ever played in there's just something about the way this plywood shack with a metal corrugated roof vibrated and the humidity and it's indescribable but it's like we have to capture this someday so eventually we decided let's make a record <laughs> and we thought of how to do it it's not an easy location and Billy had a eight-track reel-to-reel, and we thought, we'll do it on that. That'll be fun. And then the record company was like, no, you can't use just eight tracks. So they convinced us to take basically a digital tape, like a DAT machine. They convinced us to take two eight-track units, and you combine them, and you can record 16 tracks. So the record company thought, well, that's sensible. You can do that. First day at the shack, one of them dies. We're down to eight tracks again. We made do, and the equipment wasn't great, but the space had a magical sound about it, and that's what really made the record, and then inspired us creatively, too. And then came Combustication, which had that integration of hip-hop, courtesy of your longtime collaborator, DJ Logic. It was our crossover in the sense that we did two different sessions. We had the jazz, we had the hip-hop, and then we got DJ Logic to come in. It was an interesting combination of things. It just all fell together. specific techniques over the years. One, using a drumstick on the bridge of your bass, and then bowing between the drumstick and the bridge and got that high-pitched sound. I call it an acoustic theremin. It has this operatic vibrato sound to it. Or, have you ever heard anybody play the saw? 
There's a little <laughs> bit of that in there, but like a theremin for me. The result of experimentation or poaching? In our early days in the 90s in the New York downtown music scene, people like John Zorn and Mark Rebo and John Lurie doing the Lounge Lizards, Billy yep. was playing in that. So there was all kinds of really creative people trying to figure out new ways to get new sounds out of their instruments and putting certain kinds of styles into completely different contexts. Everyone was just searching for ways to get something new to happen, whatever that meant. So we were a part of that. We were just messing with our instruments all the time. And it was really just treating the bass like you would if you did a prepared piano piece, where you take a grand piano and you throw in like some, a wrench and some metal and stuff that just vibrates and makes the piano sound different. I'd do things like that. I put alligator clips on the strings or stick a drumstick through the strings and either hit it or pull it or bow on it, whatever it took. The other technique was putting a sheet of paper behind and between the strings of your bass, described as a snare sound. Yeah, it kind of creates a non-electric distortion. And this really dates back thousands of years. We really stole things like this, an African balaphone music, which is basically like a wooden xylophone instrument. To help amplify the pieces of wood, they have these gourds that are suspended underneath each piece of wood. And then to make the sound really cool, to basically create distortion, they'd let spiders in there, and the spiders would make these spider webs. And if the spider web got mature enough, it would make the gourd distort. We were obsessed with all kinds of African field recordings. Back in the Tower Records days, we were these nerdy kids scouring, scouring you know, <laughs> all the bins. Like, who could come up with the coolest, most obscure, amazing field recording from some West African country? But that was a thing. There was always this use of acoustic distortion, ways of treating your instrument to create a buzzing sound. So that's been pleasing to the human ear for before electricity. band signed to Blue Note Records, the revived classic jazz label of the 50s and 60s. We just barely caught the end of the old paradigm of the record business. Considering the kind of music we were playing, we got a great record deal. So back in the day, you would get record deals where each record cycle comes along and your guarantee or the money that you get to make the record goes up substantially as it goes on. So in our case, I think we had a five-record deal. You don't necessarily want a lot of records in a deal because sometimes you can get stuck in a situation that you're not happy with. In our case, it started out good. It was working out. Bruce Lundvall, the head of Blue Note, was this amazing human being, and he was a music lover. And so we related to him a lot and liked his vision. So we made Combustication. That was followed up by an album called The Dropper, and it was called that because we made it in our own studio. We were able to use some of the money that we got from the first record to create our own studio in Brooklyn. And we got in there and did our weird thing that we do and particularly started off the record with a pretty strange track. And so we were convinced that the record label was going to drop us. So we called the record <laughs> The Dropper. Yeah, it was hard to pick a single from that record. <laughs> <laughs> but that record gave us a little bit of an indie rock following. It was a little edgier. Concurrently, you're attacking your career more like a rock band than a jazz group in terms of the touring component. 
instead of playing smoky nightclubs, you guys put your stuff in a van and play all over the country. And it gave you something in common with what ended up being termed the jam band scene, right? Yeah. The Dave Matthews bands, the blues travelers, mm-hmm. the fishes. Fish played yeah. your tapes before their shows. Oh, yeah. it was such an interesting series of events. We're New York musicians. We were in this downtown New York new music scene, and there's a lot of jazz players. All these people, they make their living in Europe. That's where the money was. They did the festivals in Europe, and especially in the 90s. It was really well-funded. Things have changed a lot since then, but the idea of playing rock clubs in the U.S. for any of the people in the scene that we were in, they thought we were nuts. We just figured, well, if we can play for the door in New York City, we could do that anywhere. And so we started booking our own little tours and got in Billy's van and slept on people's floors and basically toured like a rock band. The music we were playing is instrumental, danceable sometimes. Influences range from Charles Mingus and Thelonious Monk and Miles and Duke Ellington, but also James Brown and Sly Stone and crazy contemporary classical music and African music and Brazilian music. It was just our weird mashup of things that were our influences. All of a sudden, these guys started showing up to our show, come backstage, they're like, hey, my name's Trey, I'm in this band called Fish. We'd never heard of them. They're already quite successful at the time, but they just liked our music, and they would come to the shows, and then eventually started playing our music during their set breaks. Next thing we know, yeah, thousands of these Fish fans are coming to our shows. To be honest, we had an identity crisis when that happened, because we're up on stage thinking Sun Ra, Mingus, and Sly Stone, and we look out at the faces in the audience and realize they're thinking Jerry, Trey, <laughs> things like that, and it was such a confusing, we didn't know how to navigate it. We came to a crossroads. We can either cater to this, which would have been very easy to do. <laughs> we knew what these people wanted, but it wasn't us. So we went in the opposite direction and scared everyone away. <laughs> <laughs> God bless you. We were like just uh, artists from New York City. I don't know. The creativity to do what we wanted to do was so important. Everything about the band was about independence. So to cater to something was against everything that we believed in and stood for. So it was this weird, rebellious thing to do, but there was literally no other choice for that band. Nothing else we could have done. And so the music got edgier and stranger, and then I started the Wood Brothers. (laughs) But... You and Modesky and Martin have been incredibly prolific, contributing to innumerable projects on your own and with others. I feel like I should bring up John Schofield's name. It seems when you needed a guitarist, he was the first call. Playing with Schofield, that was a great symbiotic relationship, not just musically, but he gave us a lot of cred in Europe. Before him, no one would take us seriously as a jazz band, in Europe especially. By that point, we had the jam band following, and so we helped him with that crowd. (laughs) He helped us with the jazz crowd in Europe, so it was good. It was a win-win. You allude to forming the Wood Brothers with your sibling. Around 2005, Oliver, a guitarist... Saturday and Sunday too I was thinking about ways not to lose Lay down my weapons is what I've done Too late to hide feet too soft to run 
When people say I'm the luckiest man. Your musical paths had diverged since your childhood. Oliver went to Atlanta from mm -hmm. Boulder and immersed himself in blues history, the origins of that genre, playing with Hensley Ellis and the group King Johnson. And then it was 15 years later that you guys managed to converge on stage? Yeah. We barely talked, saw each other during that whole time. We just were too caught up in being young musicians, pursuing a career, and it was so consuming. I ever once wanted to hear his records and occasionally see each other back home at Christmas in Boulder. Fifteen years after I'd started Modesky, Martin, and Wood with John and Billy, finally Oliver's about to turn 40, and I remember him saying, you know, it'd be fun to do something together. We had one show where his band King Johnson opened for Modesky, Martin, and Wood. Oliver sat in with us, and it was this magical moment where he realized not only how good he was, but how familiar the way he played was for me. And even John and Billy recognized it. They could sense the blood connection there. That was sort of the spark that led to this idea of us doing something together. And so my brother was like, well, I want to do one last thing before I just give up this music business thing. <laughs> I think he was feeling a little low and discouraged yeah. at the time. And then there was talk among John and Billy about slowing down and getting off the road. So I thought, okay, well... Maybe this is the next thing. We didn't know what we were going to do. We just knew what we weren't going to do. I knew it wasn't going to be anything like Medeski, Martin, and Wood, and I didn't want it to be. had no desire to try to keep that going or replicate it. And I think what interested me the most about connecting with my brother and getting involved in songs, I sang a lot when I was a kid. I just gave it up once I moved to New York, but I always liked the idea of writing and singing songs. To me, the challenge was, well, how can I bring everything that I learned in Medeski, Martin, and Wood into this context that my brother's in and the singers and the songwriting. And I had this fantasy in my head of, well, what if Charles Mingus and Robert Johnson had started a band? What would happen? What would that sound like? Because there's so many great songs out there, poetry and the lyrics, the story, the imagery, all that's great. But then sometimes the music leaves me wanting more. <laughs> and why can't the music be as interesting as the song itself? we take for granted now the time that we live in. It used to be that the songwriter, the singer, the arranger, these are all different people. And then along comes Bob Dylan and whatever, and you know, as music progresses, eventually you're expected to write it, play it, arrange it, record it all by yourself. So it's no wonder that some of the elements of the music suffered because you're just asking too much of individuals. You have to be a genius, you have to be Prince in order to do it all. Not everyone's like that. It's collaboration. It's a team effort. So I just was curious and interested in trying to find our way of <laughs> remedying that without sacrificing the song. The song's absolutely the most important thing. You don't want that to change, but there's a lot of rhythm and sounds that go unexplored when a song happens, and I feel like I wanted to mess with that some more. As I sit on the bed in this hospital room, 
shedding a tear for the bride and groom. Tiniest voice starts to bellow and cry. It's my finest work yet. If today I should die, and if I was thinking, I'd be thinking, thank God, whoever you are, for the muse and the miracle right here in my arms. Times like these so sweet and so true. Things like the cajon or the djembe or things that have African origins. This shitar is a acoustic, easy-to-carry version of the American drum kit. It's just very appropriate for the sound of the band. So mm -hmm. we can play stripped down, just acoustic bass, acoustic guitar, and with a shitar, we can just walk into any environment and play acoustically and still have a beat. The Wood Brothers are astounding in performance, most notably in the way that you reinvent your entire catalog from tour to tour. Well, it's partly for us, it's partly for the audience, but there are certain songs that just in our little Wood Brothers universe have become classics and we end up playing a lot. For example, Luckiest Man. There's been times where we've just completely rearranged that song, different rhythm, different feel. It's our music, we can do whatever we want with it. <laughs> you know, not just in the writing, but can rearrange things and put them in different contexts and it just keeps it fresh. You are the luckiest man. You're the luckiest man. On the Muse album, you worked with Buddy Miller, yeah. the acclaimed Roots musician and producer. For people who aren't familiar with Nashville, there's just so much baggage that comes along. <laughs> people think of Nashville, they think of a lot of stuff, but they don't think of a bunch of New Yorkers going in and making weird music. But there's all kinds of musicians there from all over the country. It's hard for me to meet someone who's born and raised there. Way more than the country music capital of the world, even though it's still that too, but the business infrastructure and the studios, it's really alive and well there still, unlike a lot of other places. The latest Wood Brothers album is titled Kingdom In My Mind. You have a new rehearsal and studio space with various rooms that have a different sound and vibe to yeah. each of them. The last two records we self-produced, after Buddy Miller produced The Muse, we decided that we are all experienced enough at making records that we're going to try it ourselves. And so over the past three records, we've learned how to do it, how to produce as three individuals working together democratically. And thankfully, we get along and respect each other enough to pull that off. It's actually not easy to do. What most people did and still do when they decide it's time to make a record is they write 20 songs maybe, and then they try to go in in one long epic session, depending on your budget. Could be a week, could be a month but trying to record all those songs at the same time. And it's just asking for a disaster. It's overwhelming. And that's why people need producers, because they need someone to have a perspective, because the artist is going to get lost, and they don't know what's good or bad anymore. So what we discovered by self-producing over the past couple records is to just do one song at a time. Write a song. If you like it, record it. Instead of coming up with this whole body of work all at once, 
just little by little. And that's how we did One Drop of Truth. This record, Kingdom in My Mind, we finally got our own studio. And it's this really great old building. It used to be a printing shop. And there's two tracking rooms. One's really big. You could fit an orchestra in there. It's really reverberant. And the other one's a little smaller, still pretty big, but much drier and has carpet on it. So before we even thought about making new compositions, we just got the studio ready to record in, and then we wanted to know what it sounded like. So we just started setting up in different parts of the different rooms, throwing up some mics and just jamming, improvising for hours. And we loved what was happening. We were so inspired by the space, and the way the recordings were done wasn't with any particular song in mind or anything, so... It was almost like capturing a field recording, just throwing up mics real quick, and there was a lot of bleed in the microphones. A lot of our favorite records are like that. There's a certain sound when not everything is so isolated. It's nice when everything's bleeding into each other. It creates a different atmosphere. We fell in love with what was happening. It just felt so honest and inspired. So we decided, okay, we're going to start writing songs over these improvisations. So it involved just taking them home, cooking dinner, blasting them, having a cocktail, just seeing what comes lyrically and learning all the little nuances in the improvisation and the different sections. And then I would start to edit things together. Little by little, these turned into songs, concise, real songs, where the song was the priority, but we still retained the original improvisation. We're not the first people to do that. A couple examples. Paul Simon, when he made Graceland, he basically went and jammed in Africa and created all the source material and then brought it back to the States and then wrote all those classic songs over that stuff. Or Talking Heads, they made the record called Remain in Light where they basically jammed with Brian Eno in the studio, and they created all these really interesting musical tracks, no songs. David Byrne rents a car, drives around the country listening to this stuff, also listening to the radio, preachers, the news, whatever, and just starts coming up with all the lyrics to these weird pieces of music they came up with, and that's where we get the song Once in a Lifetime. So that process has been done before, but... It's kind of cool to create your own source material before you've even written the first lyric. Of course, when you're just jamming <laughs> with a group and you haven't planned anything, you haven't talked about anything, often it's all about rhythmic improvisation so that when it comes to chords and harmonies, often you're just playing one chord or maybe two. Very simple progressions. I liked the idea that, okay, let's just limit ourselves to that. Let's see if we can make a song work that has distinct sections and verses and choruses in the traditional sense, but the things that tell you that it's now the chorus and that the music is changing is not a chord change, but the parts and the rhythm in the music tell you that. Again, nothing revolutionary. Yeah, Kuti. This is one chord forever. You're listening to every lyric, but that makes you want to dance and the sounds are interesting and that's some of the inspiration. You're a little more interactive as a performer in recent years. I don't know. I guess I'm a late bloomer. I'm in a completely different context now, and I'm older, and I just don't give a crap anymore, and I just <laughs> want to have fun. With Modesky, Martin, and Wood, there was this irreverence and seriousness, 
we were uncomfortable engaging the crowd. Like, it just wasn't us. And we always played looking at each other. It was all about the music. We weren't entertainers. It was very insular. And I didn't necessarily love that. It's just the way that band was. It's almost like we're in this fish tank, and then the audience is just staring into the fish tank at us while we do our thing. Wood Brothers, completely different kind of band. Singing and lyrics, and my brother is great at engaging the audience. I always like to move. I always like to dance. Sometimes I couldn't help myself with Modesky, Martin, and Wood, but it wasn't really part of the thing, but it would happen spontaneously, but it was definitely a natural part of who I am. So over the years, I, I have more gratitude than I ever had. If you live long enough, you eventually experience a situation where no matter what you choose, bad things are going to happen. So you just have to choose and live with the consequences, and everyone gets to that point eventually, and it humbles you. And when you come out the other side of something like that, you're just grateful that anything good is happening at all. (laughs) (laughs) I've spent too much of my life judging because I want to be good. This is like the curse of being driven at anything that you do. But in music, I was so driven to be good. It's always like, I want to be good. I want to be the best. The problem with that is then you get impatient with other people and you want them to be that way too. And it just leads to a lot of judgmental thinking and more negative inner space. I think I've really learned I don't want to live like that anymore. It's better for the music and performing. I want to look at the crowd and just be grateful. Like, oh my God, all these people spent time and money to come see us tonight. It's incredible. I want to be able to look at my brother and thank you for writing that song. Thank you for being such a great guitar player. I've just found that the best way to listen is to be thankful to whatever you're listening to. That's how you hear. As soon as you're judgmental, you know, I think, oh, you're rushing or uh, you're out of tune. You're judging and you're thinking and you're not hearing and experiencing anymore. So it's just my meditation is just go back to the gratitude and all of a sudden I can hear and feel the rhythm and the harmonies and I can interact better with what's happening instead of wishing it was different. Gratitude is a fine emotion. And it's such a cliche (laughs) at this point, but it's really, really powerful. It'll change your consciousness. It literally changes how you experience life. The hardest thing about it is to remember that you have the choice. It's really easy to do, but most of us just drift off into all the other ways of thinking so easily that you forget that you have the choice to just be thankful. It's like, hey, you know what? There's a lot of good stuff happening right now. It's okay. (laughs) And it circles back to when I was telling you, I was doing those society gigs, and there were some bitter older musicians. I was around a lot, and I just remember thinking, I don't want to turn into one of those guys. Your occasional dance moves that you allude to. Have you ever consulted with a contemporary dance troupe? I mean, it is interpretive. There's no training there at all. I used to do sports a lot, but I've always been kind of athletic naturally a little bit, but I just haven't pursued it a lot. But I like to move. It's just another way to express what's happening. And I just kind of can't help it. I just, I just, I don't know. It just feels natural. I like it. And I just had to get over worrying if I was making a fool out of myself. And then I started having fun and I didn't care. That's step one, (laughs) isn't it? Chris, what's your favorite musician's joke or story? Well, again, alluding to the bitter musicians that I had to play with and the wedding gigs back in the day, I always hated musicians' jokes because I associated it with these bitter guys. But something that happened to me with Modesky, Martin, and Wood, which I think of as a joke, although the joke was kind of on us. So before we signed the Blue Note, we were actually 
being courted by 17 different record labels. And we felt like hot stuff. Like all these people wanted to sign us, and especially for playing the weird music that we played. So one of our biggest meetings was a big hotshot in the music industry. It was named Donnie Einer. And we're in there having a meeting. Donnie walks in, and the first thing he says to us is, so I hear you guys want to sell some records, which none of us had said that. That's just his line. And then the next thing out of his mouth was, get a vocalist. <laughs> and that was it. Obviously, we didn't sign to them. We didn't That's care. Funny. But what's funny about that to me, and again, joke's on me, is that wasn't the first time during the MMW years that someone would say something like, you know, well, if you have, you know, vocalists, that's where the money is. If you really want to get your songs and movies and this and that, it's vocals, it's lyrics. And so that always stuck in my head. So I really thought when the Wood Brothers got signed to Blue Note, I'm like, oh, now, now it's going to get good. Of course, what happened was that's right when the record industry was going down the toilet and they just didn't have the money that they used to. And so... Our record deal with the Wood Brothers was nothing like Medeski, Martin, and Wood. <laughs> Things were already kind of going down the tubes at that point, and the internet was changing everything. Great joke, Chris. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's not that funny. I love it. Thank you, my friend. All right, buddy. <laughs> The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization, relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.